Hello and welcome everyone. Uh, it's good evening from me. I mean, my name is Amin Lutfi and I want to welcome everyone to uh, the 10th lecture in the Middle East Institute's 101 series. Uh, today we have a talk lined up for you titled Religion and Politics, Religion and Political Islam in the Middle East and its Impact on Our Region. I'm very honored to have with us today Dr. Noor Sharil Sa'at, who is a senior research fellow at the ICS Yusuf Isaac Institute located next door to the Middle East Institute here at NUF. Uh, Dr. Saad holds a doctorate in international political and strategic studies from Australian National University and his research apropos to our conversation today focuses on the Middle East in, the Middle East's influence on Southeast Asia and the broader geo geopolitical implications of this connection. Amongst other things, his, re his, research, re his recent research include, um, uh, his research, in, in research was on Singapore's Islamic graduates and their role and impact on a plural society. Uh, drawing on his broader research interest today, he will be giving us a socio-historical overview of the layered relationship between the Middle East and Southeast Asia via the story of Islam, moving away from uh, a very narrow focus on terrorism, which, you know, unfortunately has been the hallmark of the post 9-11 landscape. Uh, Dr. Saad gives us a more uh, holistic overview of this layered relationships and the many ideological battles uh, that kind of divide and the, the social connections that bring this region together. So without much um, further delay, I wanna pass it on to Dr. Saad. Just before I do that, I wanna remind everyone that at the end of the, the lecture today, we will have a Q&A session like always. Uh, send in any questions to the MEI events team and they will forward it to me and I will read it out to Dr. Saad and we can have it answered. So um, with that, uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Saad uh, for joining us today and the floor is yours. Right, uh, thank you. Thank you, Amin, for the uh, introduction. And uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here speaking to you about uh, a research topic that's very close to my heart, um, dealing with political Islam in Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, as mentioned by Amin, I think he has summed it up uh, very nicely for me that the, the focus for this uh, presentation today is uh, slightly different from uh, what we often hear, right? When we talk about Middle East impact in Southeast Asia, we tend to focus on radicalism and terrorism, especially in post-911, which, which is definitely an important topic. Uh, but um, I think we need to look beyond that um, and look at the multi-layer uh, issues surrounding uh, this topic. Um, this is the second time I'm giving this lecture uh, for this uh, ME101. I really enjoyed it, especially the questions and answers sessions. Uh, I gave a similar talk uh, last year, uh, and uh, I received very good questions from the audience, and uh, definitely it sharpens uh, my mind. And also, I try to revise some of my thoughts upon listening to comments and questions 
And I, I certainly look forward to the questions and answers session as well. Uh, and hopefully um, we can have a very uh, engaging Q&A session. As the Amin Mashat, uh, MEI and Southeast Asian Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, so now known as the ICC Sufija Institute, we are neighbors. And uh, I must uh, confess in the beginning that uh, I'm not really a Middle East expert. Uh, I'm more of a Southeast Asian uh, researcher. I mean, I work on Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia in particular. And generally, the topic today, we'll be looking at these three countries uh, closely. Uh, but I do have a strong uh, interest in the Middle East. Uh, I, I read about Middle East very regularly. Um, and I've been to a number of countries in the Middle East as well. Um, definitely Saudi Arabia uh, because of uh, pilgrimage you know, to, to Mecca and Medina. I've been to Egypt for research purposes as well as many other countries. I've been to UAE, Jordan, and I think uh, based on what I'm going to share today is based on my experience uh, uh, visiting uh, these countries. And as Amin uh, earlier mentioned, there are many layers to this, it's complex, and we should not simply uh, make uh, some broad generalizations when we talk about Middle East impact on our region. Um, right, I'll speak for about 40 minutes, and then we'll open the floor for questions and answers. So this is an objective of today's uh, lecture, uh, to articulate trends in the Middle East pertaining to Islam, to identify the implications of these trends on Southeast Asia, uh, namely three countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, and uh, Singapore in particular. That's what we do in, in ICC Sufajar Institute. I mean, our research is not mainly academic research solely, but also uh, looking at um, policy implications, right? So I think that's, that's important to highlight at this stage. And thirdly, the objective is to address the complexity of the Middle East impact on Southeast Asia and Islam. Let me start off by looking at three countries, uh, just to give a brief overview of the status of the three countries today. Why is Indonesia important to Singapore, uh, and also in the region, in fact, because it's the largest Muslim country in the world, uh, the largest Muslim country in the world is not in the Middle East, it's not in Saudi Arabia, uh, even though Islam originated from the Middle East, uh, but it's in Indonesia, a uh, large population of 255 million, and this is only a rough estimate, um, and 87% of its population are Muslims, but interestingly, uh, it is not an Islamic state. Uh, it's not a secular state, it is called a Panchasila state, um, but over the years he has been ruled by presidents uh, who are Muslims. And uh, simply saying 87% of population are Muslims is not enough because uh, the Muslim society, the Muslim community itself is fragmented, it's not homogeneous, there are many different ideologies, different ideas, different groups, and civil society, which makes Indonesia a very complex uh, country. So Indonesia has 34 provinces, and uh, even though it's the largest Muslim country, uh, it has uh, a ministry of religion, which not only oversees Islam affairs, uh, but it oversees six uh, official religions. 
uh, and uh, Islam has been the, uh, uh, very active at the civil society level. It has two major organizations called the Nahratul Ulama and the Muhammadiyah. Um, scholars tend to uh, simply say that, you know, NU, is a, which is the largest organization in uh, Indonesia, represents traditionalist Islam, Muhammadiyah, the modernist Islam. But in reality, uh, this dichotomy is very complex. Yeah, and it also has, um, apart from the religious ministry, a quasi-state institution called the MUI, which mainly houses the religious scholars called the ulamas. So that's a quick snapshot of uh, Indonesia. Uh, it's a very complex, uh, but I only have one slide there to show you about this complexity. Uh, you can read up more about Indonesia. Uh, the second country of focus is Malaysia. Um, different from Indonesia, it's relatively smaller, uh, but majority of its population are Malays and Muslims. Uh, but different from Indonesia too, it's clearly indicated in the constitution that Islam is the religion of the federation. Uh, though generally it is a secular country because other religions are allowed to be practiced in peace and harmony in any part of the country. Uh, there are 13 states in Malaysia. Uh, but what is unique about Malaysia is that the head of state uh, is the Yang Dipertuan Agong or the Malay King, and it housed uh, nine royal families. And uh, the royal families are interesting because they are actually the heads of Islam and Malay culture in their respective state. So uh, even though they're neighbors, uh, a lot of differences uh, between uh, Malaysia and Indonesia. Uh, Singapore is in, the, in between Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, and different from Indonesia and Malaysia, Muslims are a minority community. The latest census in 2020 states that 15.6% of the total population, 5.69 million are Muslims. Uh, majority of the Malays here, yeah, because uh, in Singapore, what is uh, popular is the CMIO model. We have the Chinese and the Malays and the Indians and the other communities. Uh, Malays constitute the minority, but majority of the Malays are Islam. Uh, uh, I mean, are Muslims, right? So they, 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 they profess to be, to be uh, Muslims. So 98.7% of them. Um, there are also, even though it's a minority community, uh, there are institutions um, in the state um, which solely pertain to uh, the community, uh, particularly the administration of the Muslim Law Act uh, for AMLA, uh, which um, also means that there are institutions catered specifically for the Malaysian Muslims, such as the Islamic Religious Council of Singapore, or MUIS, MUIS, and the Sharia Courts, uh, which handles um, Muslim uh, marriages and, and inheritance, right? So that's a snapshot of the three countries that we are looking at today. Um, so that's the status today, current status. But uh, I think uh, let's, to look at the Middle East impact in Southeast Asia, we need to look back at history to understand, to give you the, the snapshot of overview, right? Of the Middle East impact. So here, here, is some, here are some of the um, uh, brief, generalizations about Muslims in Southeast Asia. Majority are Sunnis. Uh, for those of you who may not know, I think uh, you may want to Google what is the difference between Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. There are minority Shia communities, but majority of them are Sunnis. 
uh, majority uphold the Shafi School of Jurisprudence. That's very interesting. There are four schools of jurisprudence generally in Sunni Islam, the Shafi'i, the Hanafis, the Hanbalis, but Shafi'i is the most dominant uh, school of thought. Uh, majority, as I mentioned earlier, are Malays, especially in Singapore and Malaysia. Uh, Indonesia is quite, um, uh, I mean, it has to be, to be uh, explained further because there's a distinction between Malays and Javanese, particularly in the island of Java, but majority, uh, in a way, uh, associate the Malay culture with, with, with Islamic uh, values. In terms of orientation or religious life, I, I, I would argue that Sufism at one point of time, and probably still is, uh, strong in Southeast Asia. Uh, and here by Sufism, I'm loosely defining it here. I mean, the practices which uh, Salafis or Puritan groups would, would, would consider as bid'ah or innovations, right, such as the celebration of the Prophet's birthday or maulid, visitation of graves of uh, you know, prominent ustas or ulama, or reading a certain specific prayer at a specific time. These are considered as, uh, you know, to the Puritans as innovation, but it's strongly practiced in Southeast Asia. So Sufism uh, remains strong, and I'll explain to you why. And what's unique about Muslims in Southeast Asia is that the traditional ruling elites, as I mentioned earlier, especially in Malaysia, uh, the Sultan, the Raja, Yang Di Pertuan, uh, were seen as symbols of uh, Islam and as the custodians of, of the religion. Maybe you don't see this in other uh, Muslim countries. So Islam had spread to Southeast Asia from the Middle East are more of the Sufi type. That emphasizes on rituals, devotional elements of mysticism happen. But at certain periods of um, the history of Southeast Asian Islam, uh, it also encountered the reformist movement. So what I'm trying to say here is that Middle East Islam is also not homogeneous, right? There were ups and downs. There were different ideologies at certain periods of time. Uh, one could argue that you know from Prophet Muhammad there were different civilizations after that. At one time, Shiism was so dominant uh, uh, during the Fatimid Caliphate, uh, um, uh, and then we have the Ottoman Empire, and then to, uh, and then to Egypt, of course, had the reformist movement. You know, uh, so so there were ups and downs. I mean, changes, uh, e evolution that happened in the Middle East, and I'm trying to say that you know. It had its impact is also felt uh, in Southeast Asia. So at one time we have Islam that came to this region, maybe the ritualistic, devotional, mystical type. At one point in time, there was this tension uh, between the reformist group, or some would say modernist group, uh, the Puritan group that came uh, from uh, the Middle East to Southeast Asia in the 18th to 19th century. Uh, and later part, and this is a very important part, a crucial part in 1970s, uh, another wave of um, uh, Islamic ideology came to Southeast Asia, and this is what scholars would term as the Islamic revivalist movement. Here, we can uh, witness the rise of organizations you know, like Muslim Brotherhood, Salafi Wahhabi, uh, Iranian Vilayat Ipaki, or Global Sufism, particularly after 911. All this came to 1970s, and you know. My point is that we want to understand Middle East Islam in Southeast Asia today, we have to understand history. 
That's one. And number two, we have to understand the dynamics that were at play yeah. in the Middle East and which groups are, are spreading Islam here. Which groups were more dominant? How they came here? You know, what, what, what are the ties? What were the networks? Right? So these are some of the important questions that we need to ask before we make sweeping generalizations yeah, about uh, Southeast Asian Muslims and the Middle East impact. So before uh, I confuse you further, I, I explain to you the key takeaways. Um, first, Middle East impact has always been neutral to Southeast Asia. But as I mentioned, there were ups and downs. Today, what we're seeing is that we often uh, get or take from the more conservative voices that's penetrating uh, religious life in Southeast Asia. But that doesn't mean there were no progressive voices in the Middle East, right? So uh, Middle East should not get all the blame. That's one takeaway. Uh, number two, the Middle East influence on Malay language and culture is not new. It's taken centuries, right, since the coming of Islam and there were interactions. And Malay and language and culture, like all cultures, like all native cultures in Southeast Asia, will continue to evolve and the vocabulary will continue to expand. And the influence is not necessarily Middle East. It could be West, it could be Korea, it could be Japan, or it could be Middle East. You know? So it will continue to evolve. Uh, and it's not only a, 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 a linear process. So my point is that Arabization, this whole idea of Arabization discourse in Southeast Asia needs more nuancing. Uh, number three, um, this one is important. Uh, we tend to look at history and, and, and perhaps problem, problem at, uh, problematization right, of this so-called Middle East threat to Southeast Asia. But sometimes we tend to look at it post-911 rather than looking at a more longer process of 1970s uh, of the revivalist orientation that came from the Middle East. And we want to understand also who were the local drivers then because the local drivers then, you know, they were young people in the, in, on campus, are today the leaders of uh, the respective countries. So you need to look at and understand, right? give some attention to this whole discourse of Islamic revivalism. All right, um, let's go back to the earlier parts of uh, Islamization uh, into Southeast Asia. I mean, you can read further about this, how Islam came about, and as I mentioned earlier, why um, Muslims or Malays at the point of time hold a certain orientation? Why was Maulid uh, dominant, allowed? Why was uh, certain laws uh, 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 allowed to be practiced, certain cultures allowed to be practiced? It was because the early Islamization were quite neutral to that. And you can read Caesar Adib Mahul here, the theories on the introduction and expansion of Islam in Malaysia, uh, to understand who brought Islam to this region, right? Uh, and who were the actors? Uh, how come Islam spread so quickly? Uh, uh, what were the motivations? Uh, what were the kind of society uh, that, uh, that uh, was prevalent, right? In Malay society that, that actually brought in Islam and what were the kind of interactions that happened? Uh, so Islam that came in when it, it may be brought by the Hadramis or the Sufis or whatever, but it had to negotiate, right? And also, um, uh, uh, in a way, uh, mixed with local practices, local customs, uh, political system, uh, trade laws, or, or 
or even the criminal laws or all these interactions took place. It's hard. There was some negotiation uh, that happened in the early phases of Islamization that explained why certain orientations were prevalent. Why, why were the Malays Shafi'is? Why were the Malays Sufis? Why were the Malays quite open to Malay cultural practices? So you need to understand the history. And maybe Siza Adib Mahul's work here um, can, can, can give you a sense you know, of the kinds of um, Islam that, that happened in the early phases uh, of Islamization. Um, but uh, a snapshot is that Islam that came in uh, from, from, from Arabia, um, largely from, from uh, Hadramaut, uh, uh, today's Yemen, uh, interacted, interfaced with um, a feudal society, very authoritarian, very hierarchical, uh, strength of the feudal lords, warrior class, all these things happened, right? Mysticism was commonly practiced during that period. So we see again the intermingling, intermixing of this and why certain orientations are dominated in the Malay world and continues to do so. So a very uh, interesting work is Shaharuddin Maro from Feudalot to Capitalists. Read the first two chapters and you can understand what kinds of Islam uh, were prevalent and why it remains so. Because certain classes in society tend to use Islam or tend to promote a certain kind of Islam that would benefit the ruling class at any point. Uh, another evidence of why I said that Sufism is very strong, this is a picture uh, taken from a very famous uh, shrine. If you, if, for those of you in Singapore, if you drive uh, ECP and, and, uh, and uh, before going to MCE tunnel, you will encounter this shrine uh, along the, the, the highway. Uh, this is a, the shrine of a famous Habib Noor, uh, believed to have the mystical powers. Uh, believed to be a, a, a saint among many Malays, right? Which shows that the Sufism remains very strong and the role of the Hadramis, descendants of the Prophet, uh, uh, also play a very significant role in forming the religious authority class uh, in, in the Malay world, in Singapore, Indonesia, and also in Malaysia. Um, these are some examples of uh, the Middle East impact. Uh, i just go through very quickly some of the books. Um, if you look at Azumardi Azra's book here, um, I have it here with me, um, a very important book that talks about the early networks of Southeast Asian scholars and the Middle East. They moved, they traveled to the Middle East, they learned, they came back, and there was a lot of interactions between students, amongst teachers and students, amongst teachers and teachers, and they went to the Middle East, brought back, and um, created uh, some form of uh, a discourse, right? A religious discourse in, in, in the Malay world, right? So I think it's important to understand the early phases. So it's not only Middle East coming here and spread Islam. On the other hand, we also have uh, local, uh, those from the Malay world going to the Middle East uh, and then uh, learning Islam and bringing back uh, some of these ideas to, to Southeast Asia. So it's a two-way process. So the impact of uh, Southeast Asian is the Middle East um, is quite mixed. Um, there was a very en enriching uh, exercise of, in terms of uh, enriching the vocabulary of, of the Malays. So certain concepts, um, Arabic words were used in the moon and, and included in the Malay vocabulary. 
uh, conception of God, Allah, prayers, salat, uh, heaven, jannah. No, these are all Arabic words that are commonly used by the Malays today. Uh, today's context, you know, people may say, that, oh, what's happening to the wish? Selamat Hari Raya. Today we wish Eid Mubarak. Or people don't say terima kasih anymore. Or thank you, right? Uh, in Malay, but people say shukran, you know? Oh, you're welcome. It's afwan. You know, people tend to use Arabic words now, but that's that process actually happened uh, all the time. Uh, in fact, uh, when I was growing up, um, uh, we don't Malays don't use the word salat, you know, for prayers. People use sembahyang, and and people may say that this uh, has Sanskrit origins. So there's a lot of um, intermixing, and and it actually enriches the uh, the vocabulary of the Malays. Um, and um, alphabets, Arabic alphabets were also uh, used. This is where the Jawi script came about. Uh, but not all Jawi alphabets um, are found in the Malay vocabulary. For instance, um, the letter C, we don't find it in, um, um, in, in, in the Quran or, or, or the, uh, the Arabic language. So they actually took from uh, you know, uh, the Persian, as well and also other other parts of the world so it's not solely middle east <laughs> it's also other parts uh, of the world that, that actually uh, enrich uh, society local societies everywhere right um adaptations also happen in terms of architecture this is a picture of old mosques in singapore some have domes some have kampung structures so societies evolve and you know they take what's fashionable uh, during that particular period. Uh, similarly, uh, in terms of designs as well, um, Islam do have an impact. Um, of course, caricatures of uh, animals or humans are not encouraged um, in, in the fabric. So flowers, uh, calligraphy were used and, uh, and uh, it also adds color, right? To, to the, the social and religious life of the Malay uh, community. But uh, of course, there were other movements that happened uh, during that period. And one of it was actually, as I mentioned earlier, was the reformist movement uh, that sought to reform religion. And again, Middle East played an impact. So today, maybe the Middle East is associated with conservatism or Puritanism, but at one point of time, the reformist movements uh, in Southeast Asia also borrowed uh, from or copied the struggle uh, from the Middle East. Said uh, Sheikh Al Hadi, for instance, based in Singapore, uh, very much influenced by uh, the modernist movement of Muhammad Abdul in Al Azhar University. Uh, they mimic the journals or writings, uh, a lot of contestations happening uh, in, in, in Singapore. Another example is the formation of the Muhammadiyah movement um, in 1912. Again, uh, this is where the, the reformist has an impact, where students coming, going to the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Mecca, Medina, coming back, and then trying to purify and reform uh, the, the, the locals. Um, of course, some of the tensions are religious and theology, such as against innovations or against uh, bid'ah. But uh, there are also positive aspects. Yeah? The use of, for instance, science and rational thinking, uh, you know, uh, how you determine the, the direction of prayers using compass. These are all uh, modern uh, thinking that were incorporated. 
and uh, of course education for women and this all began to rise and actually it also has uh, drew some some of its lessons yeah, from 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 the middle east okay this, this both challenges to the uh, traditionalists or the conservative groups in in the region uh, this is another example of attention uh, oh by the way um I'm not encouraging you to watch uh, too much of films, uh, but uh, just to let you know, this movie, Sang Panchira, is a story of Muhammadiyah. It's available on Netflix now, so catch it while, <laughs> while you can. Yeah? So it's a, I, I, I like this movie. It's a very good uh, movie that captures the history of uh, uh, the modernist movement of, of Kiai Ahmad Dahlan. Um, there were, of course, tensions as well between the so-called uh, the, progressive reformist group and the traditionalist groups, as I mentioned earlier, those were ulamas or religious scholars who were mainly functioning in the religious courts. So this is a book by Professor Hamka uh, that talks, that actually was very critical of the Mufti of Johor, right? the chief ulama of Johor uh, for, you know, and of course uh, for, for differences in terms of uh, uh, theology and also understanding of what is the innovations, what is right Islam, and so on. So these are the, some of the historical records uh, that, that prove this tension. And here is origins from, from the Middle East as well. So um, at this stage, some notes for us to consider before I move on. Um, so Islam is, is, is mostly neutral. Uh, normatively, is neutral yeah, about local cultural practices. Uh, though some elements like monotheism may be conflictual, uh, but uh, generally Islam allows for the uh, local cultures to survive. Um, there were tensions in Southeast Asia, and these happened to be in line with developments in the Middle East, the Wahhabi movement, developments in the Ottoman rule, and so on. So it's, it, it happened in parallel with developments in the Middle East. As I mentioned earlier, it's not always negative. Uh, even until today, it's not always negative, but uh, it requires uh, uh, some form of uh, rethinking before we say that you know that uh, everything that comes from the Middle East you know is is, is problematic to to, to the religious uh, discourse here in Southeast Asia. Which brings me to my next point. In the last 15 minutes or so, I want to talk about more contemporary issues. Right. So when we talk about the earlier phases, Middle East, in fact, you know, there are progressives, there are conservatives, there are also tensions, and it happened here. But 70s onwards, there was, there was a significant change in terms of attitude. You must understand this whole historical episode of the 1970s of Islamic revivalists right, to understand contemporary developments of Middle East and Southeast Asia uh, relations. Um, a lot has been written about this. Uh, I don't want to go through, but um, there were certain episodes that affected the Muslim world. Uh, one of it is the fall of the Ottoman Empire in 1924, uh, series of wars, formation, uh, the Arab-Israeli war, for instance, right? Um, Gulf War, uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So what does what did all this um, episode tell us? The Muslim world was basically suffering from, uh, in a way, 
colonialism. Um, their morale is very low at the point of time, and um, they were subjects to colonial rule. Right? So in a way, um, some felt that the Muslim world was going down, downstream, and there was infighting as well. So between the, you know, so after the Ottoman Empire fell, so who would be leading the Islamic world? Is it Saudi Arabia or is it Egypt or is it uh, Kamal Atatürk? You know, so these are some of the questions, right, uh, that were raised. And a series of wars, a series of invasions that took place also uh, caused the Muslim world to be in a very, um, morale is very low at that point. But um, there were other episodes as well, which um, got some of the Muslims in the Malaysia excited in this region. Um, one is the formation of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, a mass-based society that called for an alternative Islamic order uh, led by Hassan al-Banna. And of course, later, this struggle was carried out by Said Qutub. Uh, so it got some of the uh, people here in this region attracted to that. How do we organize ourselves together after all those episodes I mentioned in the previous slide? That's Second, I want to go through the third point first. You see this video playing on the side is the return of the Ayatollah Khomeini. I mentioned earlier that the uh, majority of the Malays, Muslims in Southeast Asia are Sunnis, but something happened in 1979, which was the Iranian revolution, where this 80-year-old cleric actually led a revolution in Iran, which actually toppled the Shah of Iran, or the King of Iran, who was um, uh, pro-US at the point of time. What does this mean? It actually triggered some form of excitement that, hey, we have this guy who's old and at the same time, uh, who is a cleric in Ulama, and he leads this revolution. That means they're trying to say is that, hey, is, there's, there's, there's a role for Islam to decolonize the Muslim world, right? So actually during this period is very interesting because a lot of, uh, <laughs> some actually Southeast Asian uh, Muslims moved or traveled to Iran to study this revolution, uh, uh, the Iranian revolution, and wanting to form a political order, even though, even though this is uh, Shiism and the Malays are Sunnis, but they want to study the political organization, which then leads to the second point, Salafi Wahhabism. And you know, geopolitically, the Persians or Iran, uh, has a rival, and the rival is basically uh, Saudi Arabia <laughs> until today, right? And hence, uh, what happened was that it was when the period where there was a lot of sponsorship of petrol dollars funded all over the world to support a counter ideology to uh, the Iranian revolution and the use of soft power uh, in the form of promotion of Salafism and Wahhabism, the Puritan movement as an alternative to uh, the Shiism that was promoted uh, by, by Iran. So my point is that geopolitical tensions, developments, political developments in the Middle East in the 70s, 
shaped the Islamic world here as well, right? So they were down, depressed, but now they see an alternative and then they were attracted to this movement, which then sent me to another, it's not only Middle East, Middle East uh, impact. We also need to look at the local drivers and it's always complex as well. There were competing voices. So students studying in the Middle East came back from different streams, brought at color to uh, Islam in the region. But there were also uh, local drivers, urbanization was happening, actually people moving from villages to the towns, cities to study, to work. Um, there was a strong campus movement. Local societies were also struggling uh, because they were just, uh, they just gained independence. And there was a crisis that happened in Malaysia was the 1969 Malaysia riots. In Indonesia was the, um, the, uh, the military takeover of the new order regime in 1966. Um, so they were recovering. And what would they do? They wanted Islam to be a source of inspiration, Islam to be um, the driver to recover from these crises. And what happened, it coincided, yeah? It coincided with the developments in the Middle East earlier. Political. So, so there was a lot of learning process and different groups were actually targeting different ideas from the Middle East and bring it back here. So um, for those of you who are slightly, you know, uh, I wouldn't say old, but you know, who, who actually witnessed this happening in the 80s, you know, you might have seen the Al-Aqqa movement, uh, which is generally quite a Sufi Tariqa movement as well, trying to promote an Islamic alternative. And then we have another group called the ABIM, uh, which is also trying to, to promote a de-Westernization uh, and promotion of um, Islamization of knowledge that happened in that period of time, trying to create this Islamic uh, uh, alternative. So these are the local drivers that were happening during that period. So in the last 10 minutes, I will do this. But one often speaks of the Middle East impact, yeah, but they fail to see certain things. The role of the Middle East varies. Which Middle East country? Which ideology you're talking about? Which organization? Salafi Wahhabi, Muslim Brotherhood, Wilaya Ifaqi, Neo Sufism. And even within this broad, uh, categories, there was attention. What kind of Salafism are we talking about? Uh, they were more, uh, uh, I would say, all, all ideologies, right? Could be violent, could be non-violent. Right? So we need to understand the nuances. Second, uh, beyond the Middle East impact, we need to look at local, regional drivers, right? They actually facilitated this. Sometimes we fail to see it. It could be many factors. Education, you know, third, my third point, right? Education is one, travel, globalization, new media, whatever. So they're influenced by this, right? And, and, and certainly, when we talk about Middle East impact, it's not only one impact. There are different kinds of impact. And this brings me to my last point. Right? This is fairly a recent observation about the Middle East. Middle East is also not static. It is also undergoing social and political change. We tend to associate them with conservatism and lack of economic development one more time. But today, 
Middle East too is undergoing social change. Uh, people were excited in 2011 when the Arab Spring happened, but of course, uh, didn't really materialize in many countries. But socioeconomically, in the future, right? Uh, Saudi Arabia is undergoing change. UAE is undergoing change. Uh, Egypt is undergoing change. So is Iran. Right? A lot of academic works, right, are trying to say that, you know, hey, we need to go from the uh, elite level of analysis to the more grounds up analysis, right, to understand that things are changing uh, on the ground as well. Right, let's do a quick um, uh, overview of some of these phenomena that's happening in the Malay world. And let's see uh, where is the Middle East. One point is radicalism. Right? You often associate with Al-Qaeda or the recently ISIS threat. But look at some of these. Yes, most of them are influenced by Middle East thinkers, but there were also local drivers as well. Right? So we cannot deny that actually it works both. Right? So it's not solely Middle East. They may use sources from Middle East, but the drivers could be uh, regional or local. Politics. We talk about influence of Middle East, but if you look at uh, pass in Malaysia, for instance, right? Um, which part of Middle East are you talking about? They were quite interested in the, the, the Iranian revolution, right? When they redesigned their political party in the 1980s, we see similarities, right? In terms of uh, the, you know, the, uh, the constitution change of the party, the, um, the, the role of the ulama, or the clerics, you know, in the party, right? Similar to that politically. But if you want to look at deep down in terms of that thinking, which, which uh, Middle East country are we talking about? There is one ulama who's trained in Medina, one ulama who's basically trained in, in Al-Azhar, uh, and another ulama who's trained locally. You know? So, so which, which, uh, which, which uh, influence are we talking about here? Uh, is it Wahhabism or is it Ikhwanul Muslimi? Uh, so a lot of, a lot of, 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 of some of this uh, uh, complexity that ha that's happening in, in Malaysia. Oh, I wrote this article in the 2013 elections yeah? uh, because there was a lot of quoting of this fella, this ulama from uh, who's based in Qatar, Yusuf Al-Qardawi. Uh, a lot of use of his uh, ideas and thinking by both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, so I actually wrote this article. You can still read it. Um, uh, rather than Malaysians voting, you know, people uh, will say that you know, it's Al-Qardawi you know, <laughs> who's actually voting in GE13 and why it matters. You, know? uh, you can still read this article. It's still available. Uh, online. Uh, similarly, in Indonesia, um, the PKS, is, of course, has gained attention. Its vote share has increased over the years. Um, we want to see where its influence came from. If you look at its history, very much influenced by the Muslim Brotherhood ideology, the Tarbiya movement, uh, but who are the local drivers today? So I think we need to do further research. Um, or is it only PKS who's behaving this way? You know, how about other organizations or other uh, 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 political leaders uh, in the country. Um, this slide was basically comparing two movements that has been banned recently, Hizbut Tahrir Movement, uh, Islamic Defenders Front, FBI. Uh, Hizbut Tahrir Movement, of course, has its origins in the Middle East, um, uh, but generally um, uh, only became visible in 1998. Look at Islamic Defenders Front, you know, there's been quite uh, uh, active in vigilante operations, but it's largely a local organization. 
uh, it was banned in, in 2000. But look, look at, you know, even though both may have uh, influences from Middle East, Habib Rizik educated in Saudi and the Butari movement, influenced by the global movement, uh, look at the dates in which they become active, 1998. Here, I must emphasize, it's really a local factor that, that actually influenced yeah? uh, why uh, they became active. It's actually the fall of the Suharto regime in 1998 that actually allowed them to come to the surface and articulate uh, their, 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 their ideas. So, so, so there were actually local uh, triggers to this, this phenomenon. Uh, you might want to read this book. Um, it's edited by me. Um, it was uh, in, in 2018, a chapter by uh, Yon Mahmoudi was talking about the history of some of these movements on Indonesian campus. I thought it's very good, simple reading overview of uh, some of the uh, origins uh, and also the local manifestations of some of these uh, movements on Indonesian campus. But we talk about uh, the impact today. Um, we also see that some of the drivers are not clearly Middle Eastern, you know, like consumption habits, halal certification. This is something interesting. There's this drive for halal certification uh, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, and Singapore. Um, is it really a Middle Eastern phenomenon? Uh, I doubt so. Is it really? Uh, 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 somewhere that originated from the Middle East? I don't know. It could be local in the 80s, right? But uh, my point is that there's also capitalism at play when we talk about uh, Muslim uh, behavior in this region as well. Right? So today we are concerned about Arabic dressing, culture and fashion, uh, Arabization of society, using of Arabic words and greetings, uh, Middle East is pure Islam and tainted local Islam, the dichotomy between Arabic and secular knowledge. These are all uh, issues that have been raised recently. Uh, but I think we've got to be careful when we look at this. And I think we need to really understand the origins and also the complexity of some of these debates. Uh, in Indonesia today, I think they're quite active in this uh, Sharia, uh, Sharia tourism and Sharia hotels and economic festivals dealing with Sharia. Uh, this is something that's ongoing. I'm still looking at this very, very closely. Um, but the drivers of this are actually Indonesians themselves, and they're not the Middle Easterners. Uh, of course, the Middle East also has a drive to do this, markets, but you can see the champions of this are very much the local ulama, not so much um, those from the Middle East. Yeah? I will conclude by looking at some other considerations regarding Middle East impact in Southeast Asia, uh, mainly to, to, to drive my point that it's actually a complex phenomenon, this whole thing about Arabization. How do we explain that there are progressive thinkers? I consider them progressives yeah, because um, in terms of the issues they discuss, the thinking, as well as the, um, uh, the ideas they're promoting, um, quite uh, similar to some Western scholars looking at Islamic world as well. I'm not saying Western scholarship is always uh, progressive compatible scholarship, but in terms of the, the rational thinking, you know, the embrace of science, embracing of modernity, putting things in context, I think some of these thinkers 
fit the bill of progressive scholars. We can debate about this. But some of them, Syed Adil Siraj, um, very pro-pluralist uh, thinking, um, was educated in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Quraysh Shihab, uh, one of the most prominent Quranic uh, uh, interpreters, trained in Al-Azhar University and gained his PhD there. Uh, and he has not been Western educated at all. So how do we explain this? Right? Um, in Singapore, um, the famous Habib Hassan Al-Atas of the Ba'alami Mosque, located at uh, Bukitima area, very known for his interfaith work. Um, very strong Arabic roots, uh, very much uh, immersed in local society. Uh, how do we explain that? So it's not always a Middle East impact, it's always negative. Again, same book. Uh, uh, here there's another chapter by Azar Ibrahim, which he looks at translation works, very strong in, Malay, uh, in, in Indonesia, of work, Indonesians translating progressive works, Hassan Hanafi, Muhammad Shatul, Abid Al-Jabiri, uh, into Indonesia. There's a lot of reading culture very, very good reading culture of progressive works as well from the Middle East. Then the debate comes in, why not in Singapore and why not in Malaysia? Why did they shun this work? That's another debate altogether. And my last point is that Middle East itself is confronting change. Um, there's ideological competition. This book by David Warren, a very recent book, uh, talks about uh, uh, different ulamas or different uh, icons promoted by different competing states, like uh, Qatar is, is, is uh, championing Yusuf al-Qardawi, whereas you know, UAE is championing somebody like Abdullah bin Bayya. This happens after Arab Spring. Uh, it's a promoter uh, for, for, you know, to champion certain causes uh, and the Islamic image that they're trying to bring in. So there's a very interesting work. Um, I, of course, recently uh, reviewed this book at uh, uh, Middle East, is it, uh, any, another MAI event. Uh, I'm very happy to do this. Uh, Sumantu Al-Kutubi's work on Saudi Arabian Innovation Networks. We'll talk about the complexity of Saudi Arabia. Um, we tend to see Saudi Arabia as a very theological country, uh, but I, I agree with Sumanto, and of course Sumanto has done uh, more work than me on this area in the outskirts. Uh, in other provinces in, in Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, things are undergoing change. Uh, and uh, which I argued further, actually, you don't have to look far. In the borders of the Holy Land, Mecca and uh, Jeddah, that's where the Holy Land's uh, the borders, uh, society is also changing in Jeddah at the borders. Right? So, so it's not static. Societies are not static. Um, why did I feature this book by Eric Traeger? Oh, he was looking at the Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, phenomena, the rise and fall of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, because I think the focus, a lot of focus on Arabization discourse tends to be on Saudi and, and Wahhabism and Salafism. Uh, but uh, the impact of the Ikhwan Muslimin, for instance, in terms of the thinking, um, of uh, Southeast Asian Muslims uh, are rarely discussed, which I thought it's worth reading books uh, like this. Uh, 
I must say that I'm, a, as I mentioned, a, a researcher dealing with Southeast Asia, but I do read these books because uh, I was trying to see the linkages and networks between Southeast Asia and the Middle East. Oh, so conclusion, right? We need to rethink Arabization. We need to look at the social historical processes. Uh, one uh, important event is the 1970s Islamic revivalism. We want to understand uh, local dynamics. Um, terrorism is a concern, but there are also nonviolent versions of political Islam. Um, we need to look also at religious education in the Middle East, but not only the Middle East. When we talk about Singaporeans, we also need to look at religious education in the region uh, to see whether uh, if you want to tackle conservatism or, or political Islamist thinking, it's not always the Middle East, it could be the region as well. Um, in terms of progressive voices, I argue that progressive voices have uh, bigger space in Indonesia compared to Malaysia and Singapore. And these are areas that we can discuss further in the Q&A. Okay, I think I've spoken enough. Um, maybe it's time for uh, questions and answers. Yeah, thank you so much for this, you know, wonderful as always uh, talk and really summarizing a very long and complicated history uh, for us and giving us much food for thought and questions. So um, uh, again, I invite everyone to send in their questions via the, the chat functions, uh, send it to the MEI events team and I will present it to you. Uh, we will start with one of the questions that I received from Devin Neo and Devin asks, uh, why did the conservatism movement overtake the modernist? Um, I think before this, I think I want to just like, you know, if, if, if it's okay with you, just want to highlight that, you know, that it's not necessary that conservatism and, and modernism are uh, polar opposites or are in clash with each other. And they can often go, you know, with Salafism, we see them go uh, together. But yeah, if you could also add to this. I'll take your last point. I mean, I think uh, that's a very important point. I mean, uh, we are not putting in boxes. These are basically ideal type categories. Um, I would say that uh, it depends on issues as well. Um, there is sometimes some, some groups have, are not consistent. Yeah? They may be progressive on certain areas, but conservative on certain areas. So that's one. And within the same person itself, you know, it could be you know, on gender issues, could be conservative, or when it comes to um, uh, interfaith, it could be more progressive. So that's complexity. But uh, I'm just underlining um, that you know, these are different typologies. So the question is very interesting and very good one. Um, what are the conservatives, I mean, generally overtake the modernists? Uh, we have to look at history. Um, first and foremost, during the colonial period, uh, talking about the Malay world, um, there was very little attempt to modernize local societies. Uh, we talked very highly about, uh, you know, during that period, there was education provided, modern education, uh, access to, uh, to modern institutions at the point of time, but we look at uh, the natives and local societies, I think there were some limitations to that. Um, of course, the famous uh, example was that uh, uh, Said Sheikh Al-Hadi and his group of modernists tried to establish a modernist um, madrasa, but it did not gain support uh, in a period of time, it had to close uh, after a short period. So there was, there was challenges at the time in promoting modernism. 
Uh, secondly, I think is the elites and the ruling class at that point of time, which were not too keen because the modernists could be, um, uh, in a way, undermining uh, the authority of, of uh, the, the ruling elites. So one example I gave was the earlier in one of the slides was Hamka's criticism of the Johor Mufti. And as I mentioned, the Johor Mufti is tied to the Johor ruling class. So attacking them is also attacking the ruling class in a way. Right? So, so that's why I think uh, it did not take off. Right? Uh, the, the, the modern groups did not take off. And then move a few decades after that. Uh, during the, um, the independence uh, period, right? Um, again, uh, in Malaysia in particular, I think um, uh, the conservatives were the ones who won on the eve of independence compared to the modernist movements. Uh, Indonesia is slightly more complex uh, because uh, we can say that the Islamist boys uh, were, were defeated. Uh, but of course, there was a political struggle uh, then. So Indonesia actually, initially, the progressive voices uh, made headway. Uh, during Su Su uh, Sukarno and Suharto, it made way. Uh, in fact, if you read a recent book, I can't remember the title now, uh, looking at uh, Muslim education, uh, Suharto was actually allowing yeah, these uh, young Muslim scholars to travel to the West to learn about Islam. So in a way, it actually generated a lot of modernist thinking. Uh, but after the fall of Suharto, which is, that's why I say Indonesia is generally a more relative later phenomena that conservatives are beginning to, to gain a bit of ground. So these are the course of history that actually shaped Islamic thinking. If I could just add on to that question and you know ask you to elaborate a little bit on a point that you made um, about, uh, about uh, Indonesia being more conducive for progressive versions of Islam compared to uh, Malaysia. Is that, is that, as you point out, because of in Malaysia, Islam was so closely tied to kingship um, and, and state rule that, 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 it, that, that, that room was curtailed? Or are there sort of other factors too? Or um, I'm wondering if you could elaborate. Yeah, I mean, uh, we can't generalize that much, but I think it also depends on the kind. It's not, we shouldn't be blaming on certain groups only, but of course, many other factors and intervening factors. Um, I mean, in terms of the history, it's very tied to the royal courts. And until today, in fact, the, uh, the, the courts uh, still has a significant role in, in shaping the religious life. Uh, some of the Malay rulers were actually progressive as well. I mean, they tried to, they tried to curtail some of these uh, uh, conservative voices, check them, especially after the 1970s. You can see that the, the monarchy play a, a critical role they became the promoters of multiracialism or multi-religious discourse. <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's flipped to the other way. Um, so there were many factors. Uh, first, it could be political. Uh, in Malaysia, and this is a classic case, uh, it was during the, the resurgence period was when uh, Mahathir Muhammad's first premiership in 1981 was actually a peak period of the Muslim resurgence. Uh, so we have people like uh, Abim was very strong, Darul Arkham was very strong, uh, Al Arkham was very strong at one time. So people like Anwar Ibrahim was very active on campus, uh, uh, promoting uh, this kind of uh, Islamic discourse. So what did Mahathir do at one time was actually, uh, and of course, uh, pass 
Islamic party, as I mentioned earlier, was also gaining ground uh, with, with this Fulani leadership, the ulama. So the Islamic voices were actually pushing very strongly. So what Mahathir did at one point in time was actually to co-opt this into the administration. And this was a famous case of Anwar Ibrahim joining AMNO in, 1980, in 1981. So the strategy, and I've written about this, is basically to Islamize, um, to bring this whole Islamic agenda as part of the government. And its implication happens 30 years down the road uh, today. So it became a state's agenda. Uh, one example is, of course, uh, Islamic banking and finance. These are all funded and, and sponsored, uh, supported by, by the state. Now, Indonesia is different. So Harto uh, also faced that problem of Islamization, but he did not give in as much. In fact, what he did was actually to promote these progressive groups, be it in the universities, in the sending them to the Western universities to, to understand, to study from Fazlur Rahman in, in, in Chicago. So when they came back, they were articulating a different kind of discourse to basically compete with these Islamizers, right? And hence we see that room of discourse, discourse happening. Uh, things change, of course, after Suharto fell. And what we're seeing in Indonesia today is slowly creeping mis-Islamization, but, but Indonesia still has that counter voices that Suharto invested in the 80s. That's, that's quite interesting comparative. Uh, thank you. We have another question from uh, Zainul Rashid. Uh, and he's asking, he says, thank you, uh, Dr. Nurul, for an excellent comprehensive presentation. And his question is, uh, what do you think of Singapore's approach and emphasis on contextualization in interpretation and practice of Islam? Contextualization is important, um, but uh, we need to further understand um, what it means. I mean, you look at the current attempts by Indonesia and Malaysia state, they always talk about contextualization. Everybody talks about promoting moderate Islam. Everybody talks about promoting contextual Islam. Uh, but what does it mean? At one time, one time uh, Malaysia was promoting Islam Hadari, 10 values. But we are more interested not in the 10 values. We are more interested in how these 10 values are operationalized uh, through policies, through attempts, and you know, after 2008 elections in Malaysia, was, uh, there was a lot of tensions happening in Malaysia at that point of time. So, so again, we should stop. I mean, it's a good attempt to contextualize, but, um, but uh, we need to go deeper into what, what it exactly means. Singapore, I think we, we hear regularly, we hear about this whole idea of contextualization. I, I applaud that. Um, but and this is based on my recent work uh, on the, the students, uh, Singapore students in the Middle East. Uh, a lot of it is targeted to the religious elite uh, going to the Middle East, studying in Saudi Arabia, in Egypt, in Kuwait, you know, and the messaging is to, for them to contextualize. I say it's a very good move. Nobody is denying that. Um, but um, contextualize to what? That's the other thing, you know. Um, what is the standard of 
contextualization that we, we, we want the students to, to adhere to. Because we tend to think that the students or those who are studying in the Middle East, we tend to think that they are very much influenced by Middle Easterners. They are very much uh, influenced by uh, Puritan thinking or, or conservative thinking. Actually, based on my study, um, the Singaporean students in the Middle East are quite isolated from uh, their counterparts in the Middle East. Right? So the issue of contextualization is not so much Middle East or Arabization that's happening. We need to also look at what's happening in the region itself. Influences from Malaysia, from, from Indonesia. We're talking about Singapore here, right? Influences from the social media. Uh, so contextualization has to also look at the impact of these regional states right? rather than focusing so much on uh, it is. Thank you so much. Uh, we have another question, uh, this time from Clemens here at MEI, one of my colleagues here. And Clemens is asking um, that, you know, here uh, that we've been uh, at MEI, we've been looking at uh, changes within uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf and sort of their shift from a Wahhabist to a more modernist or sort of a, at least a moderate version of Islam. Have you experienced either in your research or personal experience that that um, that change in the Gulf or in Saudi Arabia sort of cascading into Southeast Asia as well? Has there been any impact of that shift already? Uh, good question. Very, very good question. I've been to Saudi Arabia a few times over the last two decades. Uh, uh, I must say at least six or seven times been there, be it for Hajj or Mir pilgrimage. Uh, and I've been able to see the changes happening in Saudi Arabia, in Mecca and Medina itself. You know, I still remember the first time I was there in 2003, we can't even take video cameras. They <laughs> said, this is haram. You know, this is not forbidden. You know? um, there was no internet connection at all. I was still a student and I need to beat modules at NUS. I can't because I have no internet connection. No internet connection at all. Um, 2008, say, you know, I was performing my heart to that point of time. No internet connection, still very much conservative. You, so my father was carrying a video camera and he was actually told off that this is <laughs> not this funny. But look at the situation now, you know? Um, uh, uh, you know, people taking phones and encircling the Kaaba. So things have changed. Internet connection, no problems. They are they're quite advanced. So that's one example, personal example. Uh, second example is about um, uh, fashion. Uh, you, if you read Saudi news, I, I read uh, almost every day uh, Saudi newspapers. Uh, we can see that you know fashion is something that is, is promoted. Uh, we can say that this is a Saudi newspaper or this is a Western newspaper. So there's a shift. And uh, I was uh, in Saudi just before COVID restrictions, actually two, uh, 2020 in March, I was there. Uh, significant change from the previous visits is that women are manning the counters in hotels. Uh, women are now the immigration officers. And this has never happened in the past. So uh, uh, it's changing. Uh, the second argument is whether change is fast or slow. I must say change is very slow, but it's happening. It has to happen. You, can't, you, cannot, you cannot resist change. But the speed of change is something that we should be discussing. And uh, I must say that uh, 
in Mecca and Medina and in, in the holy cities, changes relatively slow. But if you talk to people at Sumanto, uh, whose book I, I discussed, I think he would have a different view because he was he's teaching in, in the provinces which are you know far from from um, from the holy sites. In Jeddah, it's different as well. <laughs> it's very much uh, any other other cities in the world. So so. The issue is that sometimes we have an image of the country. We should not make the mistake of Orientalism. You know, we tend to paint the country as one homogeneous entity without understanding the ground or without setting our foot in that country. Uh, things are undergoing uh, change, definitely. Uh, thank you. I, I have a question from my side. I, I mean, we've we've been talking here about the influence of uh, the Middle East to Southeast Asia, uh, but the discussion has generally been about the Arab world's influence on onto Southeast Asia. Um, but if you look at it historically, I mean, there's there's you know other important vectors of influence of or sort of or uh, the channels of Islam, be it uh, South Asia, be it Persia or Turkey. So how are these three areas, sort of the non-Arab brands or version of Islam coming to Southeast Asia? We rarely ever hear about, you know, sort of, you know, like we hear about Arabization of Islam in Southeast Asia, but we don't hear about Persianization, Southeast Asian or Indianization of Islam. Um, why is that? Is the nature of Islam different or is it sort of, you know, our own blind sites kind of? Ah, so there's so many factors to this. One is education, where where our people are, you know, learning about Islam. So that's why I think the privilege is Middle East because, um, again, in terms of data itself, uh, our students, uh, Madrasa students, fifty percent of them will go to the Middle East, fifty percent will go to Malaysia. Actually, <laughs> that's very rough, I guess. And uh, if you look at the universities, very few of them, in fact, close to none, actually goes to Tehran for instance, or home, you know, to study uh, uh, religion. Um, other, most of them will go to Egypt, Al-Azhar, Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia, or Kuwait. Uh, one or two in Libya, <laughs> interestingly. So that's the reason why uh, perhaps the influence there. Secondly, it's about travel. I mean, uh, of course, Mecca is natural because of the uh, holy sites. Um, Egypt would be second, I would say, because of, again, historical significance. Um, other factors, uh, uh, I would say South, South Asia is also interesting, but it's under-researched. It's under-researched. Actually, it is significant because uh, of, uh, for Singapore's context of the, the Indian Muslim community. Uh, this one, uh, let's, let's do a research. <laughs> what is but, but the dynamics itself is very interesting. And it's just to find out as well how many of them actually travel to the Middle East to study. Uh, I mean, the Indian Muslim community choose Indian, uh, choose Middle East, or do they go to India or Pakistan, right, study religion? So again, I don't have the data here. Um, on your other countries in the Middle East, like Turkey, it is. Uh, I mean, these countries are also exercising soft power, especially Turkey. Uh, there is actually, uh, uh, you need to understand the, the internal dynamics in Turkey itself. At one point of time, the um, Gulen movement is very strong in Indonesia. Uh, uh, again, the, the chapter by Yon Mahmoudi, he mentioned about uh, the, some of these Turkish movements on campus. Um, the Nursi movement is also quite strong. Uh, I encountered some 
students who actually go to Turkey to study in their universities. Universities are very modern, uh, in a way technology-wise. Thinking-wise, we haven't really, really analyzed. Uh, so the movements are there, and they're exercising soft power as well. But of course, this happened before the, the tension uh, in Turkey, right? The political tension between the, the movement and, and the state, which actually altered everything altogether. Uh, just one final anecdote. I was doing my field research yeah, when I was doing my PhD in Indonesia. I attended a big book fair at the Sanayan Stadium. It was very big. Can you imagine the Sanayan Stadium that <laughs> big uh, uh, in Indonesia? Uh, book fair. And I encountered uh, some of these Turkish books. Um, they are read, they're translated. That means they're influenced very strong uh, in Indonesia as well. Thank you. Thank you for that. We have another question from uh, Clement and sort of it builds on, you know, like the, the vectors of influence, a question of vectors. One of them was um, the charity networks, which were very influential in, um, in Southeast Asia, particularly charity networks from the Gulf. Have you seen and sort of, you know, these were direct the, the, the subject of, of both observation and sort of like crackdown in the post 9-11 uh, context. Um, has this has this crackdown sort of really limited them? Have they changed? Uh, what is the situation of these charity networks now? I, I don't have the data to that, but uh, you know there's a lot of been written, especially uh, the point I mentioned earlier about the petrodollars, uh, of course, uh, funding uh, and of course soft power promoting uh, Salafism and Wahhabism that's happening. Uh, I don't really have it. I think there is the same book. I'm not trying to promote this book, but there's another, there's another chapter here by uh, Faisal Musa that talks about, um, not that you mentioned this, um, it talks about the real and ringgit petro Islam. You might want to read that chapter. That, that deals with Malaysia in terms of, of uh, flow of funds. Uh, uh, but the other issue is this. Uh, um, what is associated with funding? Sometimes people think, right? People think that you know, comes funding, people will be influenced with their ideology, right? For instance, yeah, people tend to assume that ah, money comes from Saudi Arabia, they all become Wahhabis. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> I I encountered an experience in Batam, neighboring Batam. <laughs> Uh, there was a lot of interest because uh, there was this radio channel that people say is promoting Salafism. So I was very interested in Batam uh, Muslims at one point of time. I actually published a very small book. You might want to read it. It's on Batam Muslims. It's free for download. Um, so I encountered one where they built, they said that they got funding from uh, you know, Middle East, <laughs> uh, but largely Sufis. They still promote the traditional Islam, I would expect that, you know, this is bid'ah, or this is innovation, but no. So there's no strings attached <laughs> to it. So it's either they just take the money and then they continue and, and nobody finds out. So so things are more complicated than what people think, you know. There's money and then they have to, to follow a certain ideology. That, that doesn't work that way all the time. No, that's very true. That's very true. There's a big, you know, um, there's a complex sociological process that leads from money to sort of ideological changes. Exactly. Uh, and, and when we always, you know, often like skip on that because money is easier to see, easier to trace, but those other things are harder to trace. Uh, but, but if you're on the question of money, I want to add another question. And this question is about um, the, uh, you mentioned sort of, you know, consumption being one of the drivers 
of Islam or, or in, in, in Southeast Asia. Um, I remember in, in early 2000 Pakistan, there was, a, there was a while where everyone was talking about how Malaysia needs to be the model of Islam everyone needs to follow. How Forget about Saudi Arabia, forget about all these other places. Malaysia is the case to follow. And it was largely promoted by you know, the, the growth of the, 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 the riba-free uh, banking industry and the halal industry yeah. um i'm wondering like how how significant are these are these two sort of you know industries in shaping uh, the kind of islam or, or sort of shaping the nature of islam in, in southeast asia oh very good question um yeah i mean you're right and good that you shared that idea that you know that malaysia used to be the model malaysia was actually one of the first um to champion this whole idea of islamic banking um because, um, because as I mentioned earlier, it was actually promoted by the state, right? Because of the co-optation that happened, so the state became a driver of this, promoting this uh, Islamization from from within. Uh, but um, the other issue about Malaysia is that there was a growing middle class, and uh, Malaysia under Mahathir, if you remember, was uh, basically a rising tiger of Southeast Asia. It was a growing middle class uh, and becoming more religious. Uh, so they were actually pushing for an alternative to westernization. Uh, and hence, uh, we have all this coming up. But initially, initially, this whole Islamization phase uh, only started the Islamic banking and finance and um, uh, halal certification, right? It started in the 80s, uh, but not in other aspects. Of course, dealing became uh, more common in Malaysia at point of time. But today is different. Today, Indonesia seems to be stronger at championing this due to political developments. Um, uh, politicians are also driving this. I mean, I attended some of these uh, conferences that were available. Uh, every time you read the Indonesian newspaper, there's always promotion of Sharia banking and finance. It's quite interesting. Uh, who, I mean, we are trying to find out who are the drivers of this. Uh, so, but that's, so I would say that Indonesia is a latecomer to this, but Given its sheer size, its population, market, it will be a strong, strong, definitely a stronger player when it comes to this, right? So they are now into halal certification and, and Islamic banking and finance. Uh, and Indonesia is also experiencing a rising middle class. So there was a lot of social influences now promoting packages to Japan or Korea, but uh, Sharia. <laughs> Sharia. Uh, Sharia endorse or Sharia, Sharia well, compliant. That's the, 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 the term it is. Sharia compliant uh, tourism. Uh, so it's, it's getting bigger each day. And it's interesting as well because Indonesia being the driver of this. So because it trades with some of these uh, countries in the Pacific, and China also wants to, to, to penetrate the Middle Eastern market. So I noticed when I was doing my, my, my field work, some of these goods actually came all the way to Indonesia, got endorsed by MUI, the Indonesian uh, Council, and then to be exported as well. So there is this growth of capitalism uh, that, that's going on, that's happening, that's actually driving uh, all this process. So that's one phenomenon. The other phenomenon is, of course, social consumption. So Indonesia is so big as a market for Islamic dramas, Islamic cinema, Islamic, <laughs> Islamic fashion. 
Thank you. Uh, I have another question from uh, one of my colleagues here at MEI, Asif Chusha, and he's asking, how do you view uh, Sukma, Sukmawati Sukarnaputri giving up Islam? <laughs> That's <all> right. <laughs> um, I have not really seen... Uh, I mean, <laughs> jokes aside, it's her right <laughs> to, 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 I mean, religion, we are into freedom of religion, you know, it's her right. I mean, uh, anyone is, is free to embrace whatever religions uh, he or she chooses. Huh? But uh, in terms of the reactions on the ground, we don't really see that much traction on the ground. And that's just what I'm more interested in, because we tend to think that Indonesians are becoming more conservative, conservative turn, more Islamist, but... Uh, doesn't really make the news. <laughs> but quite uh, interesting, yeah? uh, Indonesian society, uh, they are so pluralist, I would say, that uh, within the same family, they can have different babes. Husbands and wives could have different babes. We, we hear a lot of this. Uh, whether you, I mean, we agree that this is uh, progressive or not, I think, but, but that's an interesting phenomenon that we won't see in Singapore and Malaysia. No, that's very interesting. Uh, I have uh, I have another question from uh, uh, this is a question from Zainul Rashid, and it's related to the discussion that we were having about Islamic banking and the halal market. And, and he's asking, uh, do you think there's a role Singapore can play? Is there is there space for like can Singapore carve out a space for itself within this market? Uh, of course, uh, Singapore can definitely. I mean, people are looking for good banks. <laughs> good banks that pays and we are capitalist <laughs> society whatever earns the best interest and you know but i think um, this whole idea of islamic banking is, we we have to understand the history of it and how it evolves uh, i'm i my attitude is that you know if you want to 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 um, to uh, courage or build a certain system make sure it's good and efficient uh it's your right uh, people say that this is a business model or capitalism. Yeah, I mean, we are free to do that. But uh, I'll be careful sometimes, sometimes when we use the Islamic label, right? Because if we use the Islamic label, then we tend to think that, hey, that how about the other? Is it non-Islamic? Whereas there are actually alternative opinions on the ground. This is where I think the ulamas play a huge role to educate society. Um, I leave it to the to the to the choice of the people to decide if they feel that Islamic banks is suitable for them, pays them good interest, <laughs> no interest, sorry, riba <laughs> is haram, <laughs> or they pay them good dividends. They're free to do that, but but I'll be very careful if we want to tend to, to if it leads to dichotomization that this is Islam and this is not Islam, because there's a history to this. A very 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 must-read book is Timur Kuran. It's very difficult to buy the book, so I bought an ebook. And he was the one who actually traced this whole idea of Islamic banking and uh, problems and issues facing it. He has another book called The Long Divergence, also very good, tracing it from the Ottoman Empire, this whole idea of uh, certain laws and regulations about Islamic banking and society. The Turu Quran is a very critical person, and but but it's a very interesting read yeah, to understand the whole history of Islamic banking. Whether Singapore has a role to play in the market, Singapore can play in anything as long as it's efficient, effective, 
and it serves the people well. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I have a question for here from Gerald, and he is asking sort of a timely question about COVID-19 and its, and, and, and its impact. Um, you know, during this time, we saw uh, the channels of movement and so on being severed for a while. Did that slow the, the, the relationship or, the, the, or the, the rate of or changes in Islam in these areas, or did it impact it, this kind of disconnection? Changes in Islam in the areas, mean in the Middle East, or, or yeah, so the 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 movement from south from Middle East to Southeast Asia. Um, COVID nineteen. Uh, nowadays, we don't talk about movements of people anymore. This is basically uh, the eighteenth and nineteenth century. We're talking about the digital era. So, in terms of the flow of ideas, I think there is no change. Uh, in fact, it's faster now with digitization. Um, so in terms of impact and change, it doesn't really affect. Um, but um, yeah, in terms of flow of people, definitely. Uh, but, but talking about digitization itself, and talking about this content of Arabization, and COVID-19 actually uh, accelerates this. When we talk about digital space, it's not so much Middle Eastern influence Southeast Asia anymore. Uh, a good survey of the, um, the, the young in Southeast Asia, who they are listening to will be interesting. So again, I'm generalizing. I mean, this is based on my some of my limited findings of my research on the students. Um, people are reading Hamza Yusuf. <laughs> people are reading uh, US-based thinkers. People are reading uh, Mufti Menk. People are reading. Uh, who's the guy who got? Uh, who actually is now in Malaysia? I can't remember. Zakir Naik. Zakir Naik. Yeah. So so, it's not listening so much to to Middle East. You know, they're looking at other sources. So we need to question as well. So I think, if you want to understand conservatism, which is an important agenda, research agenda, rising conservatism, rising. Islamism or anti-pluralism voices, we need to look at this based on the discourse. It's not fashionable, I know. Tackle the discourse rather than tackle where it is from solely. Of course, it has many multiple origins. That's why my argument is that we tend to think of Middle East impact, we forgot the regional impact. We tend to forgot the regional impact of political Islam. So, no, I think that's a, that's a very important reminder. That that's why, that's why to, one of my slides, I said that, you know, do not blame the Middle East all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have another question from, from Zainul Rashid. Um, and it's a question related to sort of the point that you make about the Vilayat Faki movement and sort of the influence from Iran complicating, you know, the thing. So he's asking about like, how did, um, uh, how, how did this, this influence from Iran uh, with sort of its Shia sort of baggage, uh, shape the Sunni dominant version of Islam in Southeast Asia. Very complex question. Now, what is Shi influence? Eh? Before Iranian Revolution, uh, it's very difficult to also say that there is no, there's totally no Shi influence in everything. Of course, as I mentioned, right, the, the space itself is so wide that there are, there are multiple influences in different aspects of our social life. Shia communities have been in this region for the longest time and didn't, didn't have problems. So it's only in the 1970s uh, that they, they, 
started to actually have fatwas against this uh, community. So that's the historical bit. Um, I think influences of the Hidayah Fakir, um, this is based on my experience of interviewing some of these muftis, uh, mufti, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, leading ulama, who were very much born in that era, or actually experiencing that Iranian revolution. So you're telling me this. Interestingly, in his house, all the Shi'i kitabs, all the Shi'i uh, readings, but he's a mufti in Malaysia, and it, it's forbidden to be a Shi'i right, in, in Malaysia. And uh, he, he, he has to be a Sunni. No, he cannot be a Mufti. But interesting, he said this. We learn Shi'ism. We want to study the best of that system, but we remain Sunnis. My suspicion, and again, comparing political parties or the way um, uh, politics developed in Malaysia, they were very much interested in the revolutionary aspects of it. They were very interested in the political aspect and organization of their parties and state. So we have the shura system, the council of ulama. You have uh, you have democracy. You can vote, but there is a supreme council. There is a ulama. Hey, look, pass is like that, isn't it? <laughs> pass in Malaysia. We have the spiritual leader. We have the shura council. We have elections. So I suspect there's that influence uh, from, from Iranian. But, but it's not only Iranian that they're interested in. You know? uh, as I mentioned earlier, actually most of the influence of current thinking in, in the region is, it comes from the Ikhwan al-Muslimin. Actually, it's not Wahhabism. A lot of people tend to think it's Wahhabism. I would say we need to study deeper the impact of Ikhwan al-Muslimin. Um, I think I, I shared the book on the slide, but this book which I bought uh, by Eric Treger, I read it a few times, it's very good because it's showing how Ikhwan Muslimin behave during authoritarian period. And when it saw the opportunity to get to power, when it got to power, it implemented what it wanted to do and that led to its downfall. It's a pragmatic organization. And I encountered in my experience of traveling to one of the conferences in Turkey, they uh, were talking similar, similar fashion. And Eric Trager actually traced this. There are seven steps to Islamic State. So they're pragmatic stage, you know, you know, when you share power, then when you get to power, what you will do. I was amazed that actually that it's this organization who talks in similar fashion. So I was I was thinking then upon time, hey. We should not discount the Ikhwan Muslimin's impact in social religious life and political life of Southeast Asia. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. I have a few more questions, but we can maybe people can ask you directly. Uh, you know, as always, this was fascinating and absolutely, uh, you know, like enlightening discussion. So thank you so much for joining us uh, today and talking to us. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. Please do uh, keep tuned in to the MEI 101 series and other events that are posting. Thank you, everyone. Have a good evening. <laughs>